0: Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. What's going on, Lance? What is going on, Tim? How's everything going in your world today? Everything is just fine, Lance. And even better that we get to bring our lovely audience a fun chat with a friend of ours, a guy that we really respect and admire, someone who we worked on a television show with, namely Oxygen's The Disappearance of Maura Murray. It's none other than Art Roderick. Art Roderick, former U.S. Marshal, he is a
1: current contributor to CNN when they need him to chime in when anything uh, significant happens in the world, especially crime-related. He he always uh, brings a professional opinion, and as professional as he is, it's really fun to see him sitting back in his Cape Cod abode and uh, just sort of, you know undoing the top uh the top button for us (laughs) just you know loosening the collar loosening the collar with us and uh talking about a case that he's passionate about the lady of the dunes who was discovered on july 26 1974 in uh provincetown on the cape it's the very end of cape cod in the uh, race point dunes i believe that's where she was discovered and it's close to him because his father was the deputy sheriff of Barnstable County at the time, and he heard a lot about that in the uh, in the Roderick household.
0: Yeah, what a cool opportunity for us to get to talk to Art and for him to share his personal experiences with this case and as much info as he could, um, you know, with the case file being closed, and he even mentions that they didn't open it even for him. I mean, what do you got to do uh, if they're not opening it for him?
1: Right? You'd think that Art Roderick, of all people, could just walk up to them and say, Amart Roderick, give me the keys to the file. Hey,
0: here's a U.S. Marshal pin. Give me those files. Here's a U.S. Marshal pin.
1: Yeah. No, no, he would never do that because he does not hand those things out like candy. He is not um, very—he's very particular who he gives his U.S. Marshal pins out to. And that was a bombshell. I'll say that was a bombshell. I didn't think he was going to disclose as much as he did uh, in regards to our personal relationship.
0: Right, right. The first bombshell of the night comes about 15 minutes into the interview where— uh, there's some still some confusion, I would say, on uh, exactly how many, if any, pins, U.S. Marshall pins he's given Lance, because now on these uh, Stitcher Creator commentaries that we've done for Missing More Murray, I believe that's where it started, where you started speaking about how many pins Art has given you.
1: Yeah, well, I think that there was a little bit of confusion on your part when we first started talking about it, but uh, he quickly cleared that up. Yeah. I would say uh there's the only confusion left is how many he's given me which he's lost count of which he says uh pretty pretty straightforward uh with that information pretty forthcoming i mean with that inf- information uh he he says it's more more than we can count and it's almost as if i'm just making them in my uh garage which i you know i take that as a uh a, a personal um I take that as a a personal compliment.
0: (laughs) So uh, you can probably see where that goes. And this is recorded on Thursday night on Get Vocal. So as you kind of mentioned, Lance, things get a little bit looser on Get Vocal. So make sure to join us, 9 p.m. Thursday nights, 9 p.m. Eastern. And that does stream right to our Twitter pages, our Facebook, and YouTube. But the best way to interact is on GetVocal.com directly. That's Vocal, V-O-K-L. So join us this Thursday because we're having Patrick Hines from True Crime Obsessed on. What
1: a delight that's going to be. It's really cool to be on Get Vocal and see that chat room growing and growing every week. So we love the platform. Uh, We don't get any kickbacks or anything from that. Just to be clear, we just really love the platform. They have figured out the way to... Integrate with Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and like you said, the interaction on Get Vocal itself is really where it's at. So sign up, super easy to do, and uh, join the conversation. You're going to want to join with Patrick Hines because we've been. Dying to get together with him. We had a live show that was booked for March and then we rescheduled to August and now it's sort of postponed uh, indefinitely until this uh, COVID-19 is cleared up and people feel safe to go back out again. So stay tuned for when we're going to be having our live shows with True Crime Obsessed, uh, Boston and Philadelphia. But in the meantime, we're going to give you a good vocal with him just to, uh, I guess quench the thirst a bit
0: (laughs) (laughs) and uh and the get vocal audio is what we use for uh for art and uh, it's pretty good it sounds pretty good but there is uh in the very beginning where art's talking it's a little kind of crinkly and then uh, it kind of sounds like we interrupt him uh several times but that's actually kind of a a little technical issue that uh we sort of jump him by a a word or two on some sentences so bear with us on that but the rest of it sounds really good
1: And just know we would never, ever interrupt Art Roderick.
0: And there's about 25 minutes that we left out of this, and uh, it gets a little bit looser. And, in fact, Chris Jewett of Criminal Perspective, another great show on the Crawl Space Media Network, joins us to talk to Art. And so that is going to be on our Patreon page. You can get it there at patreon.com slash Podcast. Thanks for listening. Follow us on social media, and check out the website, crawlspace-media.com. We are here to talk primarily about The Lady of the Dunes, which is a a mystery uh, deep-seated in uh, Cape Cod lore and um, it's, it's something that's very close
2: to you it is uh, um, uh, you know the Lady of the Dunes uh, was actually found in Provincetown the very tip of Cape Cod or P-Town I'm raised up there both sides of my family generationally are from there um, and uh, you know obviously I have a lot of aunts, uncles, cousins down there still to this day and uh, uh, the town near and dear to my heart, and I uh, went back in probably 2004, and uh, it was a beautiful June day. And I said, "Boy, I miss this place." There's nothing, nothing like Cape Cod when the skies are clear and the sun's out. It's the bluest of blue skies, and uh, and of course, Provincetown, a very beautiful little town. Uh, and luckily, they have kept it that way.
1: Okay, and how far back does law enforcement go in your family? Because we were. We've talked about your, your history. You Okay, my, my actual question is, are members of the Roderick family on the poster behind you?
2: Um, no, they're not. <laughs> 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 the poster behind me um, is a historical poster from like 1989 uh, that celebrated our 200th uh, anniversary uh, of the uh, U.S. Marshals, uh, which were uh, brought about in 1789. Uh, so we put out a series of posters back in 1989 to commemorate the bicentennial and this is just one of the posters and it's got several old badges and, and uh, pictures of, of marshals back from the 17, 1800s. So uh, it's, it's more of a commemorative piece than anything to do with my family.
1: But, but your family is pretty steeped in, in law enforcement. And when the case came about, the Lady of, of the Dunes, that happened uh, July 26, 1974, uh, you have memory of your father discussing this this case.
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I was, I was uh, 18 years old, and I was commercial fishing with one of my father's brothers at the time on an eastern dragger, 75-foot eastern dragger called the Jimmy Boy. And um, uh, July 26, 1974, was a Friday, so I was. We, that's the only day we don't go fishing, because the market's closed that day. Uh, and I specifically remember when this all came about. My father was, um, my father was one of the first criminal investigators in the army back in back in World War II. Uh, he fought in World War II in the Pacific Theater and became an MP or a criminal investigator afterwards and was stationed for many years in Japan, helping the Japanese establish a civil police force. He retired in 62, 1962, came back to Provincetown and was actually on the Provincetown Police Department for a couple of years, and then became a deputy sheriff in Barnstable County. And he worked out of the Orleans uh, Courthouse, which is the second district court here on Cape Cod. But he was also the bailiff in Provincetown. Um, so if anybody got in any trouble, you would see my father to get out of jail and then show up for your approved time at court. But my father uh, was in law enforcement for many, many years. Uh, my wife's a U.S. Marshal. My sister's a DEA agent. Um, I also have a sister-in-law who's an FBI agent. So... Uh, and some cousins along the line that uh, also are in law enforcement. So um, my family was either commercial fishermen or law enforcement officers. (laughs) So I
1: I can imagine (laughs) that the conversation around the Thanksgiving table probably had a lot of uh, football going on, a lot of football topics. Uh,
2: A lot of topics going on, (laughs) let me tell you. Uh, and, And obviously with all the events that have occurred here recently, Uh, We've had many conversations about what's going on today in the United States.
1: Well, that's interesting. Um, Actually, we uh, have Pi Rational there. She said uh, the family reunions must be amazing. What do you – how does that – when you do get together with your family, and you just mentioned all of the going-ons today, and do you expect when you get together with your family and you have different generations talking, is is everybody kind of coming from a different point of view, or do you all have – I guess sort of the same point of view, and you're just saying, well, you know, this is how we adapt to these times.
0: And can we raffle off an invite? <laughs>
2: <laughs> now that would be interesting because we do check our guns at the doors. <laughs> no, I'm only. Three. Oh, you don't check your guns at all. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. The the um, uh, I think it's like any other family. You know, you come from a large family, and everybody has varying, different points of view. Um, So, you know, although we have a lot of law enforcement people in the family, we have a lot of people that aren't. And uh, I've got, you know, sisters that are involved in public service, uh, nursing and school teachers um, and, uh, you know, other family members that are involved in public service. So we sort of all have that kind of view on life as my as my dad did and my mother did regarding public service and community service.
1: That's so cool that you regard it as public service and community service and not specifically law enforcement.
2: No, it's, it's community service. I mean, you're there to do a job, um, you know, and I, I always say it's, it's, and you know, I think a lot of people will agree. It's the hardest job I think going because you have to emotionally as a uniformed police officer. Now I did do three years as a, Local police officer here on the Cape, but mainly I spent my martial career uh, looking for bad guys, which to me is a lot easier than driving around in a community in a police car and in a uniform. But it is community service; it is what we're there for. And I think I think we we got away from that maybe a decade ago, and I think we're starting to come back to more community policing and more contact with the community between law enforcement and the community and and letting each other know exactly, you know, how we feel, how the community feels. So, uh, you know, even though a lot of this is going on pretty bad right now, it's horrible, horrible situation going on. Uh, You know, I think it has gotten better over the past decade.
1: You said something interesting that – It's easier, and maybe I misheard you, you said it's easier to be the guy who's catching the bad guys as opposed to being in uniform driving through the communities.
2: Well, from the perspective of when I'm looking for a fugitive, I know what I'm looking for. I know what I'm going after. A police officer in uniform doesn't really know if they pull somebody over for speeding exactly who they have in that car. I can't tell you how many times major, major criminals have been caught because they've run a stop sign or they've run through a traffic right. light, so being a police officer, you're basically sort of you've got a target on your back, in one form or another, and you never know what you're walking into. It, at least as a marshal, you know you when you're when you're going after bad guys, you kind of know it's dangerous right up front. So you're going to be you're going to be ready for just about anything. Whereas a police officer, uh, you really don't know what you're walking into. <laughs>
0: well our uh we are all very impressed with uh with your background uh but no, none more than lance and you know lance has been talking lately a lot about uh the us Marshall pins that uh that that you've given him um the, the handful of them um so i just wanted to to confirm how many how many pins you've given lance
2: i'll just before he... i i have right, no they're... idea he he must be making them he's making them in his basement no, stop, it. Now. <laughs> stop it stop <laughs> it
1: <laughs> now we've been talking about this. There's photographic <laughs> evidence of you giving me a pen when we were hiking Mount Kerrigan. Yeah. You, Tim, is in I'm front of happened. us. You're clearly giving me a pen. You, you have tears in your eyes because
2: it was so emotional for you. And and I, well, well the tears, the tears, the tears didn't have anything to do emo- with emotion. As you recall, <laughs> that hike was pretty <laughs> treacherous.
1: But we we got through it together. After you gave me that pin on the hike, we got through it together. Yeah, yeah. there was a yes. bond yeah.
0: formed at that moment. Was, I feel like it
1: was great. It was great. Um, <laughs> I was I was gonna Absolutely. wear all of them tonight, but I didn't want to embarrass. Uh, I didn't want to embarrass you or, you know, or me
0: because I haven't gotten or, any or, or, or Tim mostly. Yeah, right. I didn't get I didn't get one on the top of Mount Mount Kerrigan. So, but
1: yeah, you're you're <laughs> the <be> mail. <laughs> Well, I'm glad we finally cleared that up because Tim yeah, didn't believe me.
0: I feel like we didn't clear anything up actually. I think, I think it's very clear now.
1: All right, Lady of the Dunes. <laughs>
0: okay, so uh so the Lady of the Dunes was uh, was found on July 26, 1974 by a 12-year-old young girl named Leslie Metcalf, she was walking with her parents uh through Race Point Beach in Provincetown, Massachusetts. And uh, So this is a Jane Doe. She's never been identified. She's been sort of dubbed that name.
2: Yeah, and it's, it's um, it probably, you know, this case has always kind of been around uh, for others, probably a lot more than, than me. But when I came back after I retired and came back to the case, it kind of came back to the Cape. It kind of popped up again. And I was thinking to myself, geez, we haven't done anything on this. Law enforcement hasn't done anything on this case, so I started checking into it, and I found actually they've done quite a bit on this case. In Massachusetts, it's kind of unique or unusual. Uh, you know, I was a police officer here on Cape Cod, and any time we had any type of crime that needed crime scene technicians, um, the P.D.s down here. Um, are not big enough to have those type of expertise. So we would call the county sheriffs who had crime scene technicians that would come uh, into town, take photographs, take uh, latent prints, whatever was needed based on the particular crime. And this, sort of that's what's happened here. Provincetown Police Department is a small PD. Uh, Detective Meredith Lober has the case currently, but it is actually under... The investigative jurisdiction of the Mass State Police, which are under District Attorney O'Keefe here in Barnstable County, so the the DA actually uh, monitors and sort of manages these homicide cases uh, with the with the Mass State Police uh, task force assigned to that District Attorney, actually doing the investigation.
1: And where does this investigation stand now? Because you said that you went down there and you were.
2: Well, I mean, over the, over, you know, obviously over the years, I, it, there's, this case has garnered a ton of publicity. There's been uh, news reports, magazine articles, newspaper articles, TV shows. Uh, a lot of press reports pop up every so often. And there was a flurry over the past couple of years of, of news reports concerning the case and, and a lot of sort of uh, urban myths about what this case is all about. Um, But the bottom line, as you had stated, Leslie Metcalf found the Lady of the Dunes on that day, July 26 and 74. Um, She was actually out with her parents and some other friends who had a dog. The dog was rustling around uh, in a particular area. She went over and actually discovered the body, which was laying face down on a green towel um, uh, with the jeans kind of folded under her head. Uh, she was almost decapitated. That's how badly her throat was cut. And then her hands had been cut off and removed, and there was pine needles in the area where her hands should have been. Um, and she was she was uh, decomposed. I mean, you're talking July on the Cape. It gets pretty warm there uh, in the days, but the the ME sort of established the time of death 10 days to 3 weeks. Prior to July 26,
1: when you said that she had pine needles where her hands used to be, that's because her hands were amputated. Was it some sort of like um, did it strike anybody as being uh, like a ceremonial type thing or or like a.
2: It, it It's hard to say, because that's that's the description we have. But, um, you know, this was 1974. The chief that originally had the case, Chief Jimmy Meads, was a good friend of, of my father and of my family, he has since passed away. Um, Warren Tobias, who uh, I actually played high school football with, uh, was a detective with the Provincetown PD. He actually picked the case up, and now Detective uh, Lober Meredith Lober has the case currently. Now they're sort of monitoring it and working with the state police. So um, a lot of things have been done over the years. There's been a lot of uh, speculation come out as to who she is, what she is. I mean, apparently she had some major, major dental work done uh, in the area of thousands of dollars worth of gold work in her mouth. Now several of her teeth had also were missing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it was it, it appeared that somebody was trying to hide her her identity. Um, you know, we got no fingerprints here. Uh, Some of the teeth were removed, you know, so dental records are a little more difficult, but, uh, you know, a lot of things have happened over the years, a lot of speculation as to who possibly could have done that and where and who this woman Actually, right.
0: is. yeah, I just want to point out the geography of Provincetown, specifically on the Cape. If, if you don't know Massachusetts, well, that's that's quite a hike from Boston. That's like a like what was that like a two and a half hour drive from
2: Boston? Like it's it's about two and a half hour drive from Boston. They have the ferry that goes across from Boston to P-Town in the summertime. Uh, but it's it's yeah. a haul.
0: So and you could drive the entire length of Massachusetts in about three hours, east to west. So so it's you know geographically speaking, the 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 distance from Boston to Provincetown isn't isn't great. It isn't that it, it shouldn't represent two and a half hours.
1: Right, you're saying the the mileage between the the two, yeah.
2: Yeah, but you're you're talking small right. highways. You're talking thirteen miles of what we call Suicide Alley <laughs> down here uh, that goes to the Orleans Rotary. And then you know, from there on, it's it's a slow speed limit. So that that adds to that whole timing. And plus, in the summertime, uh, if you can do two and a half hours from P town to Boston, right? You're so lucky.
1: there's no random killer that just happens to be in P town, the way a random killer could happen to be in the middle of the of the state, unless they'd been there for a little while, or maybe there was like drug activity, or
2: you know, there have been random killings down there. They don't occur very often at all. But, uh, you know, probably seven years prior to this, you had Anton Costa, who was a serial killer who killed several women down there. But he was from Um, P-Town. And you've had other homicides down there. I remember my father working uh, as a court officer. He had to go. um, A lot of times they took juries out to murder scenes and, uh, you know, he would be the court representative there, uh, making sure the jury was wasn't. Uh, you know, molested or, or talked to or anything like that. And he used to do that quite a bit. I mean, it's, it's, it's rare, but it does happen down here. And we've had serial killers in this area, not only Anton Costa, but Hayden Clark, um, another prolific serial killer. Uh, we've had other criminals that come down here. You know, Whitey Bulger has been implicated in this particular homicide. Um, of course he apparently took that to his grave, whether it's a yes or a no. Um, but he denied any, any, uh, involvement in this particular Because that was
1: kind of his signature, right? The removal of the teeth, the removal of anything that would be like a distinguishing characteristic, distinguishing feature.
2: Exactly. And, and it, uh, the thing that kind of adds to it is, is, uh, the initial reports indicate there was no sexual right. assault. Um so it wasn't like some type of sex crime or some, some you know, sex crime that got out of control and they ended up doing that. I mean, you don't cut somebody's hands off uh, like that unless you want to uh, possibly hide their identity. Uh,
1: before it goes uh, unnoticed, and I just want to, um, I guess, remind myself on it. Shannon said that detail about the jeans weirds me out every time.
2: What's the detail about the jeans? Well, the jeans were apparently folded like a pillow. Right, um, uh, either under her head or right next to her body. So it appears, you know, when you talk about uh, individuals that that try to make somebody comfortable after they're dead, or try to assume that hey, I'm I'm going to make this this person comfortable. Usually, there's some connection between that individual and the victim, uh, and usually they play on that. The problem is it's very hard to investigate almost impossible to investigate this particular crime or any crime where you don't have the identity of the victim.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. And we, what, what is, what we know about the victim? Uh, Tell tell us about her, I guess.
2: She was like, I had mentioned dead 10 days to three weeks. She's between the age of 25 and 39. She's about five feet, six inches tall. She had an athletic physique, auburn hair, and, and another thing that was mentioned was that the blanket that she was laying on or the towel that she was laying on was undisturbed. So, you know, you can draw whatever conclusion you want from that. Uh, but there was some blood in the area. There was some tire tracks and there was some footprints. Um, unfortunately, you know, when you think back to a case to 1974, the evidence room for the State police and for the PD had been moved a couple times. And unfortunately, it appears it appears what I'm hearing is that all that evidence is lost.
1: What? I thought you were about to say all the evidence from 1974 after a couple of moves was securely kept in a airtight
2: room. And now, no, unfortunately. unfortunately, I mean, you do the best you can, you know, cold cases. Uh, You know, I think everybody's watched enough cold case shows to realize that, you know, when you see a detective go get a cold case, where does he go? In the basement, usually an old ratted box and starts pulling out boxes. And a lot of times when you move headquarters, you move evidence rooms, you move this, uh, stuff gets either archived and gets lost or it just gets tossed, unfortunately. Uh, And that is... Appears to be the case here. Now, they do have remains. In fact, the remains are interred in St. Peter's Cemetery in Provincetown, where all my family, all my relatives are also interred. Obviously, those that have passed uh, are interred there at St. Peter's uh, Cemetery also. And that's where her remains are. So what
1: is stopping someone from exhuming the body and performing DNA testing on it?
2: Well, the body's been exhumed twice already you know as we as we've moved through the decades and dna has gotten better the body's been exhumed twice and i think probably when we started talking about this case a year two years ago um i myself had a conversation with a district attorney and talked to the mass state police and you know started going over different scenarios that we could do Specifically, with some of the stuff I had done on the Alcatraz escape case involving DNA. And I think that probably has been done over the past year, year and a half. Now, the problem is what's left is not much, it's just bones. And they're not all the bones. You know, some of them have already been removed for for DNA testing over the past couple decades. They do have a DNA profile. Um, and I think probably over this past year, they have tried to do another DNA, uh, genealogical type uh, DNA profile. And we're not exactly sure where that is right now. Uh, the district attorney's office and the Mass State Police, of course, aren't going to share that openly. Not, but, um, with, but, uh, why not.
1: not with you. You can't just yeah. walk in there and say, hey, hey, it's Art. Look at the pin. It's Art. It's Art Roderick
2: you know, I, I know a lot of the state troopers and and the district attorney actually was a police officer in the town right next to where I was a police officer and he knows my father. but can I walk in there and demand to see? Yes, a case file? No. I mean, this is an, this is an open homicide case basically. so it's they're just not going to open the case files, especially now when they might be onto something good. I mean, for all we know, they could have done this genealogy charting and and figured out let this be a message
1: to people who are you know the citizen detectives we all we do appreciate the work that i say we like i'm a u.s marshal too um (laughs) <laughs> I'm like an honorary one, anyway.
0: Yeah, um, I mean, at least, at
1: least, at least an honor- honorary yeah. one. But you, you, you hear this over and over that people will submit evidence or what they think is evidence, or they'll submit a lead to law enforcement, and then they don't understand why no one got back to them to to tell them where that lead ended up or or what became of that lead. Art Roderick, who literally has was has been born into law enforcement and and was in the U.S. Marshal. Uh, division i mean the you were part of homeland security as well i mean your your resume is extensive not even you can say listen just cut me some slack i need to know this that that is those are the rules and not even you can be one to break those rules oh yeah sorry shannon and dashing in that jacket
0: shannon just wanted (laughs) to have that yeah what if you wore that jacket in there into the police station i feel
2: like no i don't don't think wearing (laughs) any type of jacket's gonna make any any, any difference. I, I, and I'll tell you, I, you know, having, you know, I worked at CNN for three and a half years and did the talking head thing with them. And I always used to tell, I always used to tell the, the anchors or the public, Hey, listen, when, when law enforcement is quiet and they're not providing a ton of information, then generally they're working on something fairly decent and they don't want to blow the lead by putting it out there. Uh, there's always a public safety issue that that law enforcement looks at. And in this particular case, we're talking a case from 1974 that every couple of years seems to generate a lot of press and a lot of interest. Uh, you know, we had the Joe Hill thing.
0: Yes, people in the chat room uh, are dying to hear about that. This is where Joe Hill, Stephen King's son, claims uh, that he recognized Lady of the Dune in Jaws.
2: Yes, and it's interesting because that was all going on around the same time, as you recall, that the first Jaws movie was being filmed around 74, and, uh, you know, obviously this body was found in 74, and he, he, you know, he actually went through and looked and picked a woman out that kind of looks like the the composite that has been done, uh, that has been out there in the press and tag this particular female as possibly the lady of the dunes. And it generated a lot of press, generated a lot of press. Unfortunately, I think from the fortunate side, it's always good to keep these cases open in the press or whatever can generate any type of lead is good. But in this particular case, that lady is alive and well and living in the vineyard. Um, She's a local resident over in Martha's Vineyard. Uh, she saw this photo and actually let law enforcement know that um, she's alive and she's not the lady. So of she the called day. them? Yes, they made, they were able to make contact. I'm not sure if she called them or law enforcement was able to figure out who it was, but let's just say that they were able to track that woman that Joe Hill said was possibly Lady of the Dunes from Jaws back to her home wow. in the vineyard.
1: Well, we just dropped an exclusive here on Get Vocal. <laughs> Shannon
2: didn't know that.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, they, there was a new, I don't know if it was newer, but there was another composite, uh, a facial reconstruction of lady of the dunes done with and without freckles in uh, 2010. And that, that facial reconstruction doesn't really look like that jaws extra. Whereas the other one kind of did that composite did. Um, yeah, I wonder which one's closer. This one, the second one, seems to have more of red hair.
2: I think that one is a three D uh, rendering, a three D uh, composite. I mean, there's, there's, you know, there are always questions because it's not a hundred percent science. Obviously, they're they're working off, you know, dimensions on faces and symmetry and all that stuff. Um, And then they have software programs out there that can do that now and age people. But, you know, one of the interesting things I've come across is that, uh, and we've talked about Parabon Nanolabs before out of Reston, Virginia, but apparently they have the capability of something called Snapshot, which if they have a large enough DNA profile, um, they are able to actually do a composite uh, of what an indi- what an individual looked like at age 25, I mean height, weight, hair color, eye color, freckles, no freckles. It- it's amazing what they can do. The only thing they can't do uh, is is the weight issue because it fluctuates so much um, over the years. So uh, you know, Parabon Nano Labs is able to do that, and I think they've actually copyrighted that that particular capability and call it snapshot.
1: I would love to know what it was like in the Roderick household when you first heard about this and you heard your father talking about this. You said that you found out about it when you were on a fishing boat, but what was it like hearing details? Did you hear details as, as an 18 year old and were you shocked? Was this the first time you heard something like that?
2: No, it was no, because I was, I was around when the, when Anton Costa was, was killing women. Uh, in Truro and in 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 uh, Provincetown. Um, so, you know, I heard my father talk about a lot of stuff uh, that he was doing at the courthouse. But, of course, I'm 18 years old, and it's a Friday, so the mark fish market's closed. But I have to get ready to go out fishing at 2 a.m. in the morning and not come back for three days. So, okay, just another story. You know, somebody's found dead on the Cape. Interesting. Uh, but I never thought it would ever take on this type of, you know, we're we're now talking about it in 2020 um, from when I was 18 in 1974.
1: <laughs> yeah, for sure. And every time you go back there, because you split your time between your work in D.C. and your I get your home life uh, on the Cape. When you go back there, you're you must be reminded every time you cross over into, you know, through like uh, like over the what's the bridge, the Bourne Bridge. How how soon as, you, as you're entering into the Cape do you start thinking about the Lady of the Dunes?
2: Usually when I'm going right into town and I can yeah. see the monument, the Pilgrim Monument from the highway, um, I start thinking about it. Um, but, you know, it's one of those cases where I, I was never uh, involved. I've never read the case files. I know probably maybe a little more than what the average person would know that Beyond what the press has reported and what I've researched, um but uh, other than that, I mean this this to me simply comes down to you gotta figure out who she is before you can solve the homicide. So how do you figure out who she is? You gotta do the DNA, you gotta do the genealogy, and I'm fairly sure that the state police are working on that stuff right and
1: now. you're working with uh, anybody in particular on this independently?
2: Okay, no. Uh-oh, oh, oh, no. oh, so you are. <laughs> no, uh, not really. Huh. Bombshell? Another bombshell here? <laughs> no. no, 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 no. You're about to oh, make oh, an arrest. <laughs> no, hey, you know, there, there's going to be two parts to this thing. And the biggest part right now is figuring out who she is. Once that's done, yeah. that's a huge leap. I mean, that's a light year leap ahead of where they've ever been since 1974. Uh, once they figure out who she is, then the real investigation begins into, you know, who did she have contact with, what she was doing, what's her family, how come nobody's reported her missing. Um, you know, I would say, was she sex trafficked? Was she smuggled, human smuggled? But she's got a lot of really high-end done. Right, what inter- does that tell you? Done. Well, it leads you to believe she had right. some money and that uh either she had some money or somebody she was with
0: it's just such a weird place to end up if you are a, a, a bo- like as a body to be dumped you know like there's one way in and one way out you know you can't just keep going so that that's such a weird clue to me
2: and and it's also those beaches race point herring cove beach that whole area is is uh you know, Provincetown is mostly, other than the little, the town itself, is mostly national seashore. Um, so it's all federal land, and um, it, but it's very well traversed. So uh, somebody was going to find that body, uh, and it's July.
1: Yeah, I was just going to ask that. This is just a couple of weeks after the 4th of July, which I imagine is a huge time of the year for uh, Provincetown. How, do, how does one get away with doing all of that to a human being in one of the most public places on, you know, in, in the, in the state at that time?
2: Yeah. I mean, I, it, you know, th- that that's the other thing. We don't know where she came from. We don't know where she was prior to her body being found. So, uh, you know, was she in town? If she was in town in Provincetown in July, uh, there's, Tens of yeah. thousands of people there. <clears throat> and it's a small, small town. Uh, you can mix in and get lost very easily. Uh, people are always walking the beaches at night. Um, and, uh, you know, that that's whoever did this, whoever put it there, I'm sure knew uh, that at some point in time soon after. Right. The fire, they didn't try the to country.
0: bury uh, her. The,
2: do you know what her hands were cut off with? Uh, no, I, I haven't seen the original uh, autopsy report, so I don't know if it was a straight cut or, you know, I, I, I didn't see, I haven't, I, I don't know how the hands were cut off. Was it done with a saw, with a blade, whatever? And I don't,
0: teeth were I don't know. removed? This seems somewhat professional to me. Yes,
2: yeah. it, it does sound right. like How do you
0: remove
1: yeah. teeth? Pliers?
2: Yeah. And, and, her, and she was almost decapitated. So, I you know, I don't know if they gave up oh, on that.
1: Do you think that it might um, be more than one person?
2: It could be more than one person. But, uh, you know, they have a set of vehicle tracks and a set of uh, footprints. Uh, unfortunately, we're talking about beach sand. Um, so there, there's, you know, Probably the tire prints are more distinguishable than the footprints. Were there a lot of so.
1: vehicles on the on the beach at the time? Was it a beach that they allowed the vehicles on?
2: Portions of Race Point they did back then. Uh, in fact, I used to go out there all the time on uh, four wheel driving. You know, you get your over the sand permit, and you would go out to where we'd go to the other side of of Race Point Light, which used to be called or still called Hatches Harbor, and we would stay out there, and there'd be you know, multiple family members out there and friends and relatives and everything would kind of stake that area of the beach out out there. But yeah, there was, there's, there's used to be at that point in time, a lot of four wheel drive trails. And out
1: there. with the hands being removed, other than um, not being able to identify the body, is there any theories about why that, that would be the case? Was there anything, maybe an, another like a connective case that you can look at where hands were removed
2: or anything like that? They've looked. I, I can tell you, investigatively, they've looked at every possible avenue from serial killers. You know, the two that I've mentioned already. Uh, well, specifically, Hayden Clark was was looked at for a while. Whitey Bulger was looked at. Um, but I, I think it comes down to the fact that they that the theory I've heard is that they believe that that the hands being cut off were just. Okay. An and issue.
1: we have Luke here who also says, um, sounds like a a boat prop incident. Has there ever been anything explored with that theory?
2: Yeah, it's, I think the cuts were too clean, and there would have been other marks, you know, on the body at that point. It wasn't like she was washed up or she was in the water. Right, her head, um, her, her her head, mean, head was body propped was with, with the jeans, there. too. Right, exactly. And there was a, a bandana nearby also. So it wasn't like she was out in the water and got hurt and then came up on the beach. Uh, it was more like she was right. And there, there is
0: some signs of blunt force trauma on her head. Any idea what weapon that was?
2: Uh, nope. Didn't see anything to indicate any type of weapon. And I, as I recall, I don't think they actually found a... a a weapon nearby so um you know blunt force trauma can be anything from a log to a hammer to a baseball bat you know uh, it, it can be anything you can get your hands on tire iron And they've they've never found the hands so correct could it possibly never be that she aid.
1: was maybe murdered on a boat and then they threw the hands overboard and then
2: well they could have thrown them in. they could have cut her hands off and thrown them in the right. water at any given point and just let the marine life take it over. Or they could have taken it. Do you think that she was it.
1: murdered there or was she placed there? Do you think her
2: body was moved? Uh, it seems like from the blood um, and the it looks like she was placed. There wasn't a struggle. So it looks like she was placed there. And, and they say there wasn't a struggle based on the area around the body and the fact that the towel she was lying on it, it wasn't really disturbed. So it, it's hard to say uh, that stuff that would be deep in the file. Uh, and it would also probably some of it would also be in the medical examiner. Uh, report, right. The because. It, report.
1: OK, so she's not killed right there because it didn't look like there was a struggle right there. And there would have been there, blood. Significant
0: right, blood, I think. Yeah,
1: Right. And there was nothing in the file.
2: Yeah. They also said she could have been she could have been sleeping. Uh you know, was one other theory that okay. came up. I don't know. It's, it's very difficult to say. And again, all that yeah. stuff is gone. So you, we're not able to do any DNA testing. You know, the state police can't do any DNA testing on the clothing, on any of the stuff that was found uh, at the crime. Has there team. been
1: any significant uh, person of interest?
2: Other than the few that I've mentioned, there have been others that have come up, but not, uh, people I wouldn't say were yeah. persons of interest. Persons of interest is a pretty strong term in law enforcement. I mean, it's one step. Oh, well, I know what the subject. term means. I'm, I'm basically so a U.S. Marshal, I, I know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> But I, I, I think a lot of people were interviewed, a lot of people were talked to, uh, even people that came forward and thought possibly she could have been their relatives or uh, could have been a relative of theirs and they did some DNA testing and proved not to be so it's not like this case is sat completely dormant i mean law enforcement both from the detective Lo, uh, lober side and uh, detective tobias from the pd and also the mass state police, they they have done a lot of work on this case. Yeah, that Whitey
0: Bulger connection is uh, is pretty interesting. Uh, Shannon in the chat room has brought him up a couple times as well. And uh, I'm I'm actually reading the the new book Hunting Whitey, uh, which is great. It's, it's about about uh, the FBI uh, hunt of Whitey Bulger, and uh, I'm almost done with it. Um, but uh, but he. He actually buried some people in, you know, he uh, some of his 19 victims. He buried them on a beach in Dorchester. Um I I think th- this would be a little early in his ring of murders, uh but this seems like it was right after he joined the Winter Hill gang.
2: He uh, hopefully hopefully in that in that book they gave credit to the US Marshals. There's court, a lot and of and- uh,
0: yes, they do. Yeah, and there, there's a lot of US <laughs> Marshal talk in there. Okay,
2: good, good. I just want to make sure <laughs> yeah, I just want to yeah. make sure But Whitey also frequented Provincetown quite a bit. Yes, and that's one of the reasons why he was sort of high on the list of people to talk to. But he denied any involvement in that case. But he used to he used to frequent Provincetown uh, down here during that time frame. I believe
1: weren't his victims, and especially the female victims, weren't they well known because they clearly had some altercation with him or there was some falling out between relations?
2: Yeah, no, Whitey's, uh, the the people that Whitey ended up doing in had some connection to what he was doing as opposed to um, some random person on the show. Yeah, because I, Um,
1: I would imagine that if the Lady of the Dunes had any connection to Whitey Baldry, it was because someone that she was associated with was working with him or she might've been running drugs for him or something, but she would have had something within the, like someone in that circle would have known, known her as well.
0: Without a doubt. I think, yeah, yeah, I think that, that would be the meaning of, of removing the hands and, and some of the teeth as well. That seems like a professional job. Like, and, and she seems like she's not, uh, you know, like, like she might've been his girlfriend or something like that.
2: Yeah. I would say, it, it has the ring of a professional job, but a professional job also means we wouldn't have found the head. A real professional job. I mean, and and Whitey, you know, was a real yeah, professional. Yeah, this
0: is pretty early, though, uh, still. I, I yeah.
2: yeah, it is early, and, and I know a lot of these guys, uh, you know, that, that do this, do perfect, um, you know, get better at – getting away with these types of crimes as they move through their criminal career. Uh, but yeah, I, I agree. I mean, if it's early on, I mean, you know, whitey, whitey's on the list of people. Um, but we'll never know at this point in
0: time. He, I mean, he, he rose to his power while you were rising to your law enforcement yeah. power. Yeah. In the same state.
2: Yeah. He, I came across them in a lot of, a lot of cases, mainly, uh, when i when I was looking for organized crime fugitives in in the New England area, obviously his name would always pop up. And then the whole issue of you know whitey being an informant and and you know, basically ratting on the Italian mob, and all that came into play in a lot of cases in a couple of two or three uh, cases that I worked in New England dealing with organized crime. What cases. was
1: that like in your circle of peers talking about this one character, this Whitey Bulger? Was he really as uh,
2: like deadly as you know, was was he? Oh yeah. Yeah, I mean he but but there's there's a lot of characters like that. And and they were all I mean, you know, you work cases in Rhode Island back in the day and you talk about Patriarca. you work cases in Springfield, Massachusetts, and it was Skyball, you know, Scabelli. Um, so the mob guys were always kind of there in the background, and especially with the cases I was working because they were tied, the, the two cases that come to mind are Alley Boy Persico and Salvatore Michael, Caruana. And Alley Boy Persico was hooked with the Colombo crime family in new york but was being hit out in connecticut caruana was hooked with a boston mob he was being (laughs) hit in connecticut so there's all this connection in new england new york that was going on at the time um to hide these individuals and
1: who are you taking um direction from as a U.S. Marshal uh, in in relation to all of the organized crime? Because I, I'm assuming that you and your peers would look at something that Whitey did or something that you think Whitey would do, and you want to go form a case or maybe form an investigation against him. Who do you take orders from? And they say, here's your directive. And do you ever bring like ideas to, to that entity as well?
2: Oh, absolutely. Uh, it, you know, the uh, very simply, the FBI has jurisdiction over okay. organized crime cases. So the marshals have worked with them in the past. We've come up with information. I mean, when I was working a couple of cases in Connecticut, we were able to turn over boxes of info to the FBI that they were able to use to literally break the back of the mob um, in in uh, central New England area. So, um, yeah, you have to work jointly because uh, although we might have a fugitive. It's an organized crime person and is wanted, you know, the FBI might have had the original case. So we do work together and, and exchange information. It's gotten a lot better, I can tell you, since the 70s and 80s. Um, but, uh, you know, that you have to share info, um, otherwise you're losing a whole block of information. And, you know, we don't have a way of actually looking at what a criminal does if you didn't catch him on friday how many crimes did he commit two weeks later on that following friday so we try to put the get these individuals in custody as quickly as possible for public safety issues
1: did you have ever have any um dealings with the uh isabella stewart gardner museum heist
2: no but that's that's another one whitey's been then <laughs> implicated in um No, I did actually want to do something on that particular case more of a TV uh, production as opposed to uh, my law enforcement career. But, um, you know, the Marshal Service uh, is an investigative agency, but really they deal their bread and butter is fugitive cases. Um, So uh, if they had located somebody and had an individual's name, then a lot of the times they'll call us in to actually find these types of individuals. So in that case, they still have no idea, you know, who, who committed that robbery. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Apparently he says in that same book, uh, or it's in that same book that he claims he had nothing to do with it, but I Kim haven't gotten to that, that part book. yet. <laughs> I, the book is great. <laughs> Once again, I love it. I do.
1: Okay. So if the U S Marshal prime, the U S Marshall service primarily, uh, is there to locate, um, fugitives. Was there ever a fugitive that you were assigned to locate that made your heart maybe skip a beat where you thought to yourself, this is going to be, this is going to suck.
2: Oh yeah. yeah, There's a lot of them. I mean, I, when I had, um, worked in Connecticut in the mid eighties, I got promoted to headquarters and basically, ran a bunch of cases out of headquarters in the field. So I'd done a lot of work in Jamaica um, back in the 80s when the shower posse was huge uh, down in Miami. um, And, you know, those individuals would love to kill a cop. Um, They don't care. You know, they've got 20, 30 killings to their name. Uh, They're enforcers for the for all the different posses down there. It's kind of died out a little bit now. At this time, it's become a lot more localized down in down in Jamaica as opposed to here in the U.S. But yeah, just about every one of them. I mean, unfortunately, since 2011, we've lost, I, I think, around 9, 10 U.S. marshals doing exactly that, executing arrest warrants, and uh, they've been shot and killed. Uh, we've also had several... Uh, task force officers that are special deputy u s. marshals, which are local police officers that we deputize to help us out in these cases um, that have been shot and killed uh, while executing arrest warrants. i mean when you when you go after, you know the marshals average around a hundred thousand fugitive felony arrests every year, okay, and that's that's with all their task forces across the country, and that's domestic and also international we go after fugitives that are wanted overseas uh... i'm sorry that are wanted in the u.s. that are overseas and vice versa those that are wanted overseas that come to the u.s. we look for those individuals also so uh... unfortunately there's a lot of job security out there for anybody working in the marshal service in the fugitive program